Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Health Points. I'm your co-host Ben Wilkins and with me is Pete. Hey, great to be back. Uh, and today we have a great episode and we have Lucia. Lucia is the CEO of Imagining. She graduated in applied mathematics and founded the company in 2004. Since then, she's been involved with all of her heart and energy in the company and has 20 years of manager experience in innovation and research with projects with a special focus on digital interactive technology to deliver user experiences. Lucia is involved in European research around enabling technology, specifically serious games, gamification and digital interactive technologies for learning, training and behaviour change across several sectors, particularly health and care, culture and business. There's a hell of a lot going on there, Lucia, but it's great to have you on the episode today. Thank you very much, Ben, and thanks for the invite. Wonderful. So it'd be great to start with understanding about your background and how you went from applied mathematics to creating imaginary and health gamification. <laughs> okay, thank you. Well, um, yes, after I graduated in applied mathematics, actually, I wanted to be a mathematician in a company. Unfortunately, uh, I'm not an American person. I uh, was born and studied in Italy and every industry or big company where I knocked at the door said uh, that was very interesting, but mathematical models are not being developed in Italy and normally in Europe, at least at that time. So I figured out I had to change my plans if I didn't want to move to the US. And uh, I started working for several software companies in different sectors. And I always stumbled in a way, I don't know why, uh, into training, which became e-learning at that time. So e-learning was quite new um, and it was never really convincing to me because in a way I had the feeling it was just not interactive. It was not creating experiences, you know. It was just a sort of uh, um, digitization um, of something that was not created to be digital. So in a way, not really creating a sort of PDF uh, out of a sheet of paper, but something very similar. And I was really lacking the simulation um, aspect that training could have and should have if you want to really dive into... Uh, understanding complex scenarios. So after my experience in a couple of those companies, I thought I was uh, going to try to do something actively on my own. So trying to see if I could change this um, sort of uh, um, well habit or offer that was becoming usual. And I opened my own company at that time in the incubator of the Technical University in Milano. Uh, together with two partners who have a technical background. And we started working on games for uh, training at that time with the idea of creating sort of uh, simulation scenarios where a user could build up experience because when you have more experience, of course, you can uh, open new doors. So you, you can create your own keys to open new doors. So um, in a way, it was maybe by mathematical backgrounds uh, which I was carrying, of course, into this new well adventure or this new training approach. Um, and we soon realized that at the same time, almost really at the same time, there was the Serious Games Foundation working in the US and creating the concept of Serious Game, even the definition we didn't have at the beginning. And we quickly realized this is exactly the same of what we're trying to do. 
So uh, we started with games for training and we started almost immediately in working for European research. Maybe because we all come from scientific uh, subjects. So the idea of studying also uh, new approaches or studying or changing perspectives of systems is something which we all share, all three company partners. Uh, so we started trying to see what we could apply um, in terms of uh, new ways of training into research projects. So we started, for example, how you can support reflection processes with games uh, or how you can uh, um, apply different learning methodologies behind the game design or the creation of games, uh, in what context you can use them. Uh, how you can trigger motivation. I know I'm opening up tons of potential questions for Pete now, but anyway, <laughs> I provoke you deliberately. <laughs> and um, so this is how we started. And we soon realized a couple of years later, some three to four years later, that actually we could also offer some very, very interesting new approach to healthcare and, and very many aspects there. So potentially there we could really make a change. So after four years, I think, uh, from company foundation, we changed quite drastically from training to healthcare, which doesn't is exclude training any, anyway, because um, first of all, you have medical trainings clearly, but also when you deal with projects that have to do with changing behaviors and raising awareness of people and so on. There's always training concepts included because if, if you want to be or to raise awareness, people have to understand what is going on. They have to understand uh, links between uh, behaviors and potential consequences and so on. So the training concept was never something we threw away, but it is something that we embedded into uh, new contexts and new concepts in a way. So it takes time to do a, a research project with the EU and you were pivoting from training to the health side. How was that as a from a company perspective? Because I know from running a company, sometimes you want to move really fast into the new thing um, that you see working. What was that like? Uh, actually, it was very, very smooth because the process behind the scene is exactly the same. Um, when we started the company, we always, really from the beginning, um, we tried to work with a multidisciplinary team. So we always thought uh, it's not a matter of having the right technicians. Of course, you need the right technicians, the, the, the people wanting to explore new technologies all the time and so on. But the point is you need not only training specialists, you need psychologists along uh, the whole team because it doesn't really matter if it's a training or healthcare, but motivation is the um, really the main key of the whole story. In other terms, uh, when you develop a game for, for users, um, you want them to relate to the game. So you want them to realize, aha, they know uh, my difficulties, my expectations, my scenario, my whatever is relevant to them. And um, I, I feel that the game was designed having uh, me as, as, as the target uh, group or the target users clearly in mind. So the game needs to be motivating for the user. It cannot be uh, designed in love. 
So you can have the, the best technologies, the most modern approaches, but if you don't uh, develop it together with the final user, you're never going to succeed. So this is exactly the same in the two, uh, in the two settings, if it's uh, training in general or if it's uh, healthcare with maybe training concepts behind. So that was very smooth, actually. And, and anyway, in a research project, you have all your research partners, universities and so on working uh, at your side. So you have also the time to investigate things. You have three to four years normally to work on the same topic. So that was well interesting, but easy in a way. I can imagine it was a lot more work than you, than you lead on to. But what, what I understand what you mentioned there is that creating games that users resonate with. And a challenge is, is there's generally no one-size-fits-all game for anyone. You have different people with different health needs, different player type, different motivations, different personalities. How can you make sure that you create games that resonate with uh, the majority of people? Or do you, have, do you accept that you're only going to be able to reach a certain percentage of people because it will only resonate with that percentage of the population? Well, this is, I think, the relevant question and the relevant point for game design. What we do when we have to design a game, um, one of the biggest efforts is really to study the target group. So, uh, in other words, if, if, you have, um, if your aim is to develop a game in the healthcare sector, well, it goes without saying that you have to work with medical specialists because, of course, you have to preserve a sort of... Uh, scientific background or medical practice that that is maybe um, what is being used in traditional medicine now it depends on, on what we're talking about if it's uh, prevention rehabilitation if it's uh, uh, living with a pathology it, it has very many different aspects but uh, clearly if there is a common practice you have to um, deliver at least the same results that, that you have uh, without the digital technology. That's clear. So everybody knows they have to work with doctors. But then again, the point is that uh, normally, probably, hopefully, you and your team are not part of the target group. So you're not part of the patient group that you are addressing, provided it is patients, because in prevention, it's not patients, for example. But still, you have to be one of those persons who have this uh, need or impairment or, um, well, yes, um, process to go through. And you have to find out what all the needs, constraints, frustrations, expectations, fears, and so on are. So it's not a matter of uh, only uh, an age group or uh, a place where you live, because there's also a cultural issue here. You don't want to deliver a game which works only in Italy or only in the UK or only somewhere else. Pathologies are normally global, global things. So, I mean, a stroke is a stroke everywhere in a way, right? So, uh, and other pathologies um, also. So, uh, you really have to find out um, where this technology is going to be used. Is it in the clinic with the therapist or is it at home alone? Is it together with a facilitator? Is it in a group? In what context? So, um, you have to make a lot of choices which are starting with the choice of technologies, of course, because uh, the, the, the game doesn't have to be an app. It doesn't have to be on mobile. It doesn't have to be on the web. It depends. Um, so you, ha you have to find the right solution technology-wise. And then again, the, the design of the game needs to be co-designed together with the target group. 
So this is a methodology where we always uh, put a lot of emphasis on. And this means that you have to work with uh, samples of the target group in different countries because you want to avoid the cultural biases, which of course makes it more difficult and which costs more. So there comes again the beauty of the research projects because at least they are uh, at European scale, so you have contacts in different countries. Um, then, just to answer your question about uh, resonating with the game, so, so you collect a lot of information about the motivation of this target group in this context, because, you know, motivation of people changes according to the scenario. So you as a person have a different way to be motivated if you're in your spare time or at work, if you're uh, healthy or if you have a pathology and so on. So after you, um, you collect all this, this information about motivation and you start designing a game that is meaningful to most of these people, another um, thing that normally goes together with the design is a sort of clinical dashboard behind the lines, which means that the same game, the same setting scenario and game mechanics has different characteristics for different kinds of uh, impairment, for example. So if your impairment is just just light or if it's medium if it's uh, uh, of one or the other kind there are some parameters uh, which we embed into the games which make which allow a specialist to tune the game for each single user this we do also in learning for example um, for example we developed a game that is um, teaching autistic children how to deal with with everything that has to do with soft skills, if you want. So dealing with your friends at school um, in a break, for example, or how should you ask your teacher if you should ask her or him um, during a lesson, if you want to go to the toilet or whatever. All these kind of things are critical for autistic children. Or if you have a trip, day trip with your friends, uh, how should you behave there? So for example, here again, we have a dashboard behind the lines and all these kind of situations are in a way linked through a store, some storytelling, but separate from the technical point of view. So the teacher can uh, decide what situation to turn on and off for the different users so that you have a sort of, imagine like a puzzle, you, you put together all those tiles that are meaningful for one child and not for the other. And, but the storyline still holds so that the game is, um, is, is really tuned to the capacities, to the needs, to the stimulation that is needed for each single user. Of course, this doesn't mean that it is okay for 100% of the population. There, there, I mean, you know, the Gaussian, how do you say that in English? Uh, the, the curve of Gauss, it always has the two extremes. So you, you have to target the 80% in the middle. There, there, there will always be someone uh, who is not addressed by the, by the game. But there again, in healthcare, you have inclusion criteria. For example, we have this main product, which is a rehabilitation system for neurology patients, but we deliver the system to the specialists and on top of tuning it to this, the single uh, patient, the therapist decides if it's safe enough, if you're the right kind of patient to whom I should give a home kit and send you home to do the training or not. If you might belong to that 20% who still needs to be 
together with the therapist in the clinic. So all these kind of things have to be uh, taken into account. So in other words, digital technology doesn't solve 100% of the situations. Uh, it, it has to be given to specialists. I fully agree that you can't just slap an app on everything and hope it's going to make change. Uh, oh. Apps don't heal people. People heal people or people repetitively engaging with a behavior because an app is so engaged and they want to do that. Exactly. I want to ask a couple more questions because I know otherwise Pete's going to jump in and I'm not going to get the chance. So I have two questions. One, can you give the listeners some examples of the kind of gamifications and the kind of games and the kind of interventions that you've created through Rehability? And two, I also agree co-design is really important. We do a lot of it in my work with the organization that I run. I also feel that co-design can create rabbit holes to go down because one of the challenges with any qualitative research is are you getting a representative sample of the population or are you having a few very loud and opinionated people in a group and therefore that's skewing where you should be going co-design? So within that, how big should a sample size be for co-design? And do you need to filter the type of people coming along to make sure it is representative? Okay, so you mentioned Rehability and that's our main product, which is the rehabilitation suite that we have. Uh, that's now a medical device in the neurology area. And in the meantime, we're also working on a cardiac version, on rare diseases, on, on the cognitive versions or, or other kinds of pathologies. Uh, the kinds of exercises that we deliver there, so the, uh, well, the games or, or the gamification approach that we use is uh, covering the physiotherapy. So the traditional exercises that are being delivered by specialists today. Uh, as well as the cognitive stimuli. So it's, it's an in-between between, between uh, the work of a physiotherapist, of a neuropsychologist, and of um, an occupational therapist. The occupational therapy side is important because uh, in our case, it's uh, adults in neurology, so it's patients typically between 60 and 95, so that's the uh, age range that we pick. And these kind of people are very much motivated by autonomy. So in other words, you cannot really deliver the game that really looks like a game for a teenager, but you have to, um, to explain to them the usefulness of the exercises that they uh, are going to do with the system. And in other words, if they realize that tomorrow they might be more autonomous in their own homes, doing normal stuff if you want, then they resonate with the game. Then they realize, aha, this is useful because I don't want somebody supporting me to, I don't know, put away my coffee cup or do things that might be very normal to us, but which they are not able to do on their own anymore. And once they get over this step, so they realize that what is included in the suite of exercises is helping them in this area, then you can also... Uh, play with the metaphors a bit more. So get away a little bit of ecological games. So that's the name that we normally give to um, games that play, for example, in your in your own home. Uh, and and be a little bit more on the on the game side in terms of, of metaphors or flying around a canyon or whatever you want might want to do. So um, yes, things that are a bit out of, of a normal routine. 
Then we have other games, but they go beyond reality. So like, like I said, the game for autistic children, or we have a very nice game for children with cystic fibrosis uh, to um, take care of them in their routine. Of course, there's no game that can help them to get healthy anymore. Unfortunately, that's simply not possible. But you can avoid them uh, doing mistakes. And, and so they have to take care of a um, small puppet, so a sort of uh, companion that has actually their own problems, where they have to learn the consequences of uh, well, wrong behaviors normally. So there's some sort of learning between the lines. And, and so we do different sorts of games. In terms of um, co-design and the, the target group uh, that you work with being representative, I don't think, I don't know, I'm not a methodologist uh, myself. We have one, of course. I don't think there is a standard size again. Of course, if you want a game that is relevant uh, over the borders and over, over different regions, uh, you have to take samples of these people in different countries. For example, in the case of cystic fibrosis, there's a nutritional element included there. So what you eat is relevant and you might eat the wrong things, in other words. So Mediterranean kitchen is very different from the kitchen in northern countries. So, of course, you have to work with two different target groups in a way and the game has to differentiate where you live so you have to tell them if you live in southern countries or in northern countries in other words because then it gives you different hints and even the learning the mini learning units that are contained in the storyline they take into account different uh, alimentary habits so it it really depends uh, what I know is that, and you know it as well, I'm sure, it's a cyclic process. So you start with samples, you work on prototypes, you test it again on different people. So it's not the same sample going hand in hand with you for, for three, four years of, of uh, design of a product, but then you change the sample. So you enlarge the group in a way, and then you tune it all the time, and then you, you collect data, you publish research, and you see how it's going. You check not only motivation, but you also have to check um, well, medical efficacy. So there's very many aspects that you have to check. So in the end, you, you realize when it's stable, but it's very different to predict how much it takes and, and how good the first results are. Normally, you throw away everything that you start with. I agree. We have similar systems that I've gone through in terms of we start with very small samples, build up over time. Um, the challenge that we still have is there can be some very opinionated people in co-design focus groups, and it can be challenging sometimes to understand where our team are being led by maybe one or two people and their personal opinions and their perspective of the world and what this game should do or what this intervention should do, uh, as opposed to something that's truly reflective. And I agree, it's about having larger sample sizes later on um, and having that truly iterative process. Quick one yes. before Pete jumps in. How long does it normally take as a cycle, would you say, from concept through to actual delivery? Uh, well, I think actual delivery on the market, you mean? Yeah. Oh, uh, that takes a long, <laughs> long time. Uh, with rehabilitation, with the rehabilitation suite, uh, you, you might uh, be surprised or even not. It took us eight years, almost, because... Um, we did a lot of studies on the physiotherapy side. We did a lot of studies on the cognitive side of rehabil neurology. Rehabilitation is complex already, so it's not the easiest context that we could have picked. 
uh, then it takes time to develop the frame. So the, for example, decoupling the work of the therapist from the work of the patient. So building all the analytics and the dashboard behind, doing all the studies, collecting the data, publishing papers and so on. Then you think you're finished because patients are happy and therapists are happy. No, you're not finished because then you have to certify it as a medical device. And that takes another, well, six months to a year. And then you think you're done and you're very happy and you deliver it on the market. And then comes, well, I don't, I, I was the one not wanting to mention it, but GDPR and privacy and all the stuff. And that takes another age because, uh, well, it's not even a very precise normative. So, you know, there are shades of gray there. And then you find out from lawyers that uh, some things rely on personal opinions and that makes it more difficult. So you thought you were ready for the market and actually you're almost, but not really. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know if there's a final answer to your question in the end. It was making me laugh as Ben stole my questions there. So it's fine. <laughs> Um, but it sounds like it's with health and games, it's an always ongoing project. Um, I was really in interested in the insights you were giving us into the, like, the sheer level of detail that you need for a health game, the personalization, really, the different diets, the different locations. How likely does it make you to want to create a new pro product for a new medical service, thinking that you'd have to go through that iteration all again? Is it, is it worth doing? Can we inspire people to do this? I would say yes, because, you know, it, it's a great adventure. I mean, we're passionate of what we're doing, honestly. So we love the results we get. Motivational indexes are super high. Even elderly patients, we have motivational indexes over 90% of elderly patients saying, yes, I prefer this to traditional therapy. Uh, yes, I see the point of doing this. Yes, I want to go on doing that at home, or I would suggest it to peers. So... This is making it worth it. And even going through all the research and the studies, although, it, of course, clearly it's frustrating sometimes, but overall, it's a fantastic adventure because you really have the feeling you can improve people's quality of life. And I think that's fundamental for us. At least, I mean, we, I have a probably crazy bunch of people working here. Uh, so it, it really gives us the, the fuel to go on and wanting to do it. Um, only, I would say, realistically, because, oh, of course, I'm also the CEO of the company, so, you know, there's also something called balance sheet and all this kind of stuff. Without research projects, we wouldn't be able to do it because it simply costs too much. So we, we, we really wouldn't have the possibility of doing it because at least if you have the first, say, three years paid by a research project to lay the foundations of everything, also because when you work in innovation, not everything you do is... is taking you any, somewhere which is relevant. Sometimes, as we said, we, you throw away stuff. So um, also, it's it's not like uh, data protection officers and all these kind of people think. They give you a, a sort of a checklist and they say it should be designed like this, but this is not how innovation is coming uh, into being. Sorry. Uh, this could be the last check and the last, uh, well, you, you can then fix it so that it respects the norms and it should respect the norm because, I mean, in the end, we're dealing with people. So it's a serious thing. thing. But that's not how you can create innovation. This is clashing against innovation. So you really have to think out of the box and, and try and experiment and so on. It makes it worth. Uh, it, it 
takes you a little bit uh, the happiness when you have to deal with all this pragmatic stuff. So it would be great, in my opinion, if we could go on, and I include you guys, because I think we have the same DNA, in being creative and somebody else could take care of all the, can I say the boring stuff? I mean, somebody will hate me for this. But even if I see the, the, the reason for needing it, it's still boring stuff that takes your creativity away. So I really think it would be great to have two teams and we belong to the first one, to the creative team, which is passionate, works for ages to make people happy. And then the others fix it for the norms. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think you're describing a high-performing gamification team. It sounds like a great idea. And yeah, I want to be on, this, on the... Uh... Well, and the others can take care of all the other stuff. Even today, uh, I've been going through finances, balance sheets, regulatory approval, legal documentation. I've squeezed in an hour of reviewing some UI and UX for some gamification features, but yeah. I've squeezed my entire work day and only one hour is the creative side of it now. And I think that is one of the toughest parts about being yeah. a leader within an organization working on gamification is you end up further and further away from that gamification side of it. The sort of results you were seeing, you were saying you were looking at the stats of like the feedbacks. Are there any like stories that have come out of people using the service, the game, like uh, complete life changes? What, what sort of things do you hear that motivate you and keep you going? Um, well, life changes, honestly, I don't know. Also because, you know, behavioral change takes time. So you should use it for so long. I don't know. But there are nice stories. Uh, one of my favorite ones is um, an elderly lady, I think, uh, in, in, I don't know if it was Sardinia. Anyway, a couple of years ago, uh, actually, one of the feedbacks we got was that in neurology and rehabilitation, this lady said um, that there Actually, in the meantime, they are after something like a stroke or some kind of these diseases. They feel like losers in their life. And now playing these games, they have the feeling they can win again. And well, actually that opened up my eyes, I believe. So that is something that sometimes I really again and again and again, I put in my slides because I don't want to forget that. That's cool. So, so what are they winning in the game? Well, nothing actually. Scores and stars, and they see they have feedbacks on three levels. So one level are the stars that pop up when they do a positive action, versus the explosion if they do wrong. And then there's a positive sound versus the explosion sound, and the scores go up instead of going down. And at the end of the game, they always can compare themselves to their own record in the same game. But they realize they can do well, they can do better sometimes, or even they don't get worse because in some uh, cases, of course, that's already a positive result. We have to be honest and realistic. So these kind of things uh, makes them happy. I, I remember this lady playing uh, because one, sometimes therapists and doctors are, are a bit, uh, well, tough on us. So I remember one of the very first times we introduced the system into a hospital uh, we were there actually to train the staff and they said, oh, wow, wait a second. We have three patients waiting outside and we bring them in. And I was really like driving up the walls because I thought, wait a second, the therapists are not trained. So we are not therapists. So what should we do with the patients? I mean, I was horrified, honestly. And there were a couple of on a wheelchair and um, another lady, she was a bit fitter than the others. And in the end, it was a huge success. I mean, I was sweating to death because I was really thinking I'm, I'm not 
getting out alive from this event. I, I, really, I was scared because these people are fragile people and you don't want to frustrate them. You also want to have respect, but we don't know how to treat them because we are not trained to treat patients. And actually, I don't know, everything went super well. And there was this lady playing with a game where you have to catch flying eggs with, with, a, with a basket. And she was screaming and shouting and laughing. She was really excited. And she said, ah, you made me play this game because it's the most difficult one. And she didn't want to break the eggs. And she was so super excited that everybody was laughing around. And she had a great time. And it was her rehab session on that day. So these stories make it really worth. That's fantastic. The, the whole bit about, what well, I think what you've described is the fact that people volunteer to play games yeah. and make life difficult on themselves. And unfortunately, because we're in this health space, we're like, no, no, we've got to be really careful. But actually, yes. maybe there's a time and a place for people to judge it for themselves. What do you think, Ben? Am I going off in the wrong direction? There's a time and place for everything, Pete, I think. And if you have the right therapist, because let's not forget the therapist. On that day, the therapists were doing an amazing job because they didn't know the system, so it was a risk for them as well. But they knew their patients and they were involving the patients while they were learning the system so well that that was also key to success. I mean, there was this gentleman in the wheelchair with, with the voice. Really, you had the feeling he was on the verge of crying all the time. So I thought, oh, my God, now, now what, what's going on here? And he had to catch some flowers and avoid the bees in the game. And at the end of the game, he said, can I say something? And I thought, oh, my God, now what is coming now? And he said, imagine when I was young, I was a hunter. And now I have to catch the flower and avoid the bees. So for him, it was actually very funny that being a hunter, he had to do this kind of exercise. So, you know, all these kind of things that happen, but they do volunteer. They, you know what? Therapy is, is amazingly tedious. They are in pain. They get tired. And if you have something that breaks their routine and that takes their attention on something very different, the game on, on the screen in this case, they forget to complain. They forget that they're tired. The therapists say they want to finish the game, even if the, the session of therapy has finished already, while normally they want to run out of the door. I think you really picked up on something there about that it's voluntary playing. And you think of the traditional games, Xboxes, computer consoles, whatever it is, and those kind of games out there on people's phones, people go to take part in games in a completely voluntary way. It's part of their ledger. The big challenge is getting people to perform healthy habits and, and actions and exercises or whatever it is to manage their rehab or recovery. But often they're seen as chores and not something people want to do. The moment you create something that people voluntarily want to engage in and don't want to stop doing, that's when you start to get towards the solution to this big problems we're facing. Yes, although that's not valid for everybody because not everybody's volunteering to play. There's also people who don't like to play, honestly. Or if they, you tell them, let's do a digital game, they say, no, why? Why should I do one? So actually, um, on those people, it's the therapist who makes the difference. Because therapists say, let's do it in another way. Look, uh, we can do this together. So even if they, they have to be encouraged a bit, uh, there the therapist makes the difference. And then when they learn that they can do it, and actually they, through the game, they see the point of doing it. And they realize it's actually much easier to do it with the game than without the game, because I forget that I'm in pain. I forget that I'm tired and so on. Then they want to go on doing it. So... There's actually two groups. 
there's an interesting thing there as well, which is you've got a therapist dealing with a patient in a very private space. One of the things that worked in the example you just gave was actually they were playing in front of other people. So even though you don't necessarily want to play, you see the fun other people are having and then you want to take part. Is there a way we can you can bring that in? That was a bit extreme, honestly, in my opinion. But still it worked because the people made it work. So I wouldn't bring it in as a standard and I definitely would not bring it in into the technology because if you, there are some people asking, why don't you do sort of group sessions or something? Because there's not two patients who are exactly the same. You cannot compare patients and you, they have different pace and so on. So you, you can do it in a group in, in this sense, if the therapists pick the right people and if they are facilitating the whole story. So maybe there's one who is more volunteering, like Ben said. So then I bring this person into the group because then this person is surely having fun. And then the others are getting interesting and they see that the game is easy, for example, to play. So it's nothing very complex where I should be a gamer from, uh, I don't know, uh, since 20 years or something. And then you can involve them, but this should, be the case maybe for the very beginning and then uh, uh, therapy is a very personal part you know you mentioned it here about uh, things that you've thrown out as well in the past can you give us a bit more understanding of what didn't work and why didn't it work as well what was your journey in that yes of course for example um, one thing that we threw out and uh, one thing that is good to mention is that um, you have to pay attention what graphics you use so if you have impaired people, for example, with cognitive impairments, you cannot just design graphics because it looks nice. And I'm not even talking of 3D instead of 2D, because for elderly people, you don't develop in 3D, full 3D, which is very immersive because that's confusing them. Uh, even if you keep it 2D, there are, for example, guidelines which tell you what uh, color schemes you have to use, what kind of uh, a type of forms you need to use, like like something between a design and an icon, if you want, uh, or what are the mutual distances that uh, placeholders and, and elements should have, for example. Uh, and sometimes I see even in other systems uh, which are out there, you see they are, these are not designed in this way. These are just this, maybe they look nicer if you compare it with ours, but these are not the guidelines that you have, uh, that, that you should respect for a cognitive treatment, for example. So we, we had actually some games with um, some design, which I like better than what we have now. They look really nice, in my opinion. And then we found these guidelines and we had to throw all the design away and start from scratch because the, the design was just too complex for this kind of people. You know, if you have uh, quite a strong cognitive impairment, you might uh, work only with squares and, and spheres and, and design like that. So imagine if, if you design details of objects. Do you think there should be more quality control and guidelines within health gamification, or is that creating more red tape and excessive regulatory requirements? Uh, well, <sighs> guidelines are good and you should respect them, of course. I think that the creativity... Um, well, of course, you shouldn't stop creativity, but the point is, what is your objective? So, for example, if you have to, uh, to, to take children with cystic fibrosis through their daily routine, then you can be creative and you, you should have a look that is appealing 
for children. So the monster that we have in the game can have a different cap or sunglasses or, or a necklace or whatever you want as gamification bonuses if you do the learning units, because the point there is not cognitive impairment, for example. But if your objective in the therapy is cognitive uh, triggering, then there you need the guidelines because if you don't respect them, you might be creative, but then you miss the point. So it, it really depends on the context again. My last question in this episode for you this year is what's next for you, for Rehabilitate, from everything you've learned to date? Kind of, Is it about delivering what you've done in the eight year plus years of research or is there a next step you're exploring? Um, what comes next are different things. So on the one hand side is all the business side of the story, of course, just to bring the investment really to market. So, uh, well, in terms of sales and, and uh, organization of, of the whole services, also because also the market has a long way to go until it's um, embedded properly into a new routine, which contains training therapies, changing organizations because you need new working processes and so on. So that's one big route and that's one of the next uh, steps that we will uh, explore and support and and well see what they bring the other on the other side there is uh, all the other versions so the cardiac version rare diseases uh, musculoskeletal diseases orthopedics and so on because again um, you cannot and i see there are some systems uh, saying this is a rehabilitation suite yes sorry for what you also not, don't have a physiotherapist for anything. You have a specialized one for cardiac rehab and so on. So you need to have the specific content, which takes, again, studying with the patients and collecting data and publishing <laughs> papers and so on, certifying. And so the whole pipeline uh, starts from the beginning almost. Um, and the other thing for the, the future will be an exploration in terms of artificial intelligence. But here I'm really being careful because this is in the meantime a buzzword which everybody uses without even knowing sometimes what it really means. Um, today there is nothing doing uh, rehabilitation and, and changing levels, difficulties, characteristics and so on uh, automatically also because this is absolutely not possible and not accepted today. In the future, this might be very interesting. And in my opinion, it will stay in terms of suggestions to the doctor or the therapist saying this might make sense or this change might improve uh, performance, for example, or it might be time that you consider this change. So in terms of facilitating uh, specialist work, but I don't believe that in the next 10 years or something we will... Uh, eliminate physiotherapists and doctors and so on and put an, a machine learning engine or something like that uh, in that space. But still, uh, we investigate a little bit, very softly. Last thing then, do any kind of big bits of wisdoms or tips for game designers and health out there, Lucia? Multidisciplinary team. That's always the same thing that I say. Forget uh, doing the software house exercise, uh, thinking it's only a matter of technology. That is a great, succinct bit of feedback and wisdom for people. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, as I told you at the start, I'm in awe of what Rehability do and what you've created and the time and investment it takes to get to a product where it can do and achieve what, what you do now. Um, but thank you so much for your time today and looking forward to catching up with you next year. It's been brilliant having you on the show. Thank you very much as well. Take care.